Well, good morning. What does it take to live an unswerving life? And if you asked yourself that question and uh, you were thinking about what does swerving mean and what does it mean to live an unswerving life, an unshakable life, one of the things that we so appreciate in our lives is the fact that we have uh, people around us. And if you would talk to someone who doesn't have a church family, has never gone to church, who has never experienced what it's like to have a, a church family in that way, your language would be much different than it would be if I were talking to, to one of you. And uh, one of the things that we sometimes take for granted is, is the fact that we have certain things in place in our life that allow us to live in God's blessing. So we kind of have this blessing around us, and yet we sometimes take it for granted. It's kind of like, I think kids, when they're growing up in a family, they don't realize just how essential parents really are. Uh, what the blessing of having a, uh, a regular meal on the table or that sort of thing. And, and then they, when they move out of the house, what usually happens? They, they have a little different perspective. They're more thankful. They recognize the blessing that they had following around them around. Um, and one of the things that we kind of look at in our life is that sometimes we have not only regrets, but we look back and we think, man, I wish I had a do-over. I wish I could do this decision over, that decision over. I wish I could have went a different path right here. And I want you to think about what your greatest regret in life is. Not to be a downer, but I want you to think about it because it's helpful to contemplate what happened. Where, what was going on in my life at that time? Why did I make that decision? What were some of the things that maybe uh, played into that whole situation? And then I just want to ask you, have you ever swerved? And if I asked you to raise, I didn't bring Snickers because they were way outdated. Uh, and so, but I'd have you raise your hand. If you swerved, most of you would say, yeah, I admit, I, I've swerved. And whether it was a swerve in your physical life, meaning that, you know, you, you kind of fell off the train after January 15th with your new, your new uh, commitment to exercise, or whether it was your spiritual life, where you maybe can recognize certain times in your life where you kind of fell astray, and you didn't go to church, you didn't have people around you, and it had an impact on your life. I want you to just behold the beauty of that car right there. And... Isn't that, a, isn't that a pretty car? So that is a 1983 Honda Civic um, in its glory. And that is the, almost the exact same model that I bought in uh, North Dakota. And, and I was just so proud of it. I had gotten, I'd replaced this car. And it had been replaced by, it replaced a car that my wife has dear to her heart that I met her in. And that is very much this car. <laughs> that pretty much is it. That is a 1977 Chrysler New Yorker with all the bells and the whistles. Uh, <laughs> and as you can imagine how I wooed her off her feet in that. And I, for another time, some stories that way when she first saw it, the impressions weren't less than, than, than glorious. But I want you to recognize something about that. If you were to look at this vehicle and ask yourself, how would that do on the track? Indy 500 okay, track, nice little curves and that sort of thing. And then you looked at this car, 
How, how would they compare? Phil, you own a Fiero. How, how would this compare to the first one? It wouldn't hold a candle. When I say do not shake contents, you literally, this is a car that I drove to high school basketball. You, you would touch the wheel and it would just continue to wiggle. It would just be like, you, you went around a corner and afterwards there was sort of this, like almost a ripple effect. And I just mean to tell you that that was not the car that was meant for the Indy 500. And it had a lot to be said for, there's a lot to be said for something that can take some swerves, some take some curves. You want to have a life that's built that'll handle those things because they're going to present themselves to you. God's word tells us that we need to be unshakable, that we need to stand firm. And one of the, some of the verses that are really meaningful in that way is in 1 Corinthians, it says, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is in vain. Again, be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be men of courage. Be strong. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. And Galatians 5.1 says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. How do you stand firm? How do you not swerve? How do you live a, a life that is, is unshakable in terms of it may be a veer here or the veer, veer there, but it's, it's not going to result in, in, in something happening. And as we look at just God's words, we can just see so many uh, other verses that go along with that that, are, uh, that really just encourage us that we would stand firm. But the question then is, is how do we do it? How do you make sure that you get to the end of the track? How are you going to manage that? And what things do you put in place? Well, God's word has some insight into that. In Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, uh, God, the writer of Hebrews encourages us as God's spirit just uh, allows us to kind of see what it is that we are to do. It's one of our commands, really. It's not an option. It says this, let us hold unswervingly, stand firm, to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward loving good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see, as you see the day approaching. Benjamin Franklin said this, We must hang together, else we shall most assuredly hang separately. What God's word says is this, we were made for community. We've been talking about community for a long time, and it is so important because this is, the, this is what allows us to not swerve, allows us to live out the life that actually God wants us to live out and to have a relationship with him that is completely blessed beyond the measure of someone who has no community and no people who are really in their, li in, the, in their lives that can actually encourage them and speak to them and tell them, hey, you're getting close to the white line. I think of those new things they called rumble strips. And I, I remember being annoyed. Does anybody remember being annoyed at them the first time you kind of ran into the rumble strips? No? Maybe? Okay. A lot of you are going, I don't think I know what you're talking about. I was annoyed by, it, by the fact that they were just kind of like there. But they're there for what purpose? Wake you up to save your life. Has, it ever, has, it any, has anyone ever actually fallen asleep and hit the rumble strip and it, waked you up, it woke you up? Okay. 
I raised my hand. Yeah, absolutely. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Thank heavens that was there. Something to speak into my life to keep me what? From swerving, from going off the road. And when we recognize the purpose of it, then we realize it's not this annoyance. It's not this thing I have to put up with. It's actually a blessing in my life that allows me to, to be in a relationship with not only God and having a close relationship with him, but other people who are doing the exact same thing. And company that way is powerful. And as we look at uh, the early church, we recognize how powerful this is. Just consider how the lives of the early disciples, and I'm not just limiting it to the apostles. Those are the ones who actually saw Jesus, walk with Jesus, etc. But just the disciples and how it changed their lives. And we, we see that, that there's a change in their life. If you read through the book of Acts later on, you realize, wow, the ingredient in Acts 2 produced an unswervingly, unshakable life and the people who lived the way they lived. And how do they live? Well, in Acts 2, it tells us, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number... How often? Daily. Those who are being saved. Wow. You've got this environment of people who, these believers are not only are meeting together in the temple courts, but they're also meeting where else? In small groups, in their homes, in small gatherings, the ecclesia, or the gathering of these people, fellowship, koinonia, realized that they were getting together and they were doing the things that were pretty important. I think Caitlin mentioned food. They did food too. Yeah, food's good. And so you recognize that they did life together. It wasn't just they got together, uh, read some Old Testament stuff, and then went home. They were doing life together. And that's the Acts 2 church that produced inside the people who, who actually participated in that community some very, very, very important and very steadfast things in their lives that allowed them to go through persecution that you and I have probably never seen unless you're, uh, you're an anomaly that way. So what does it take to live an unswerving, unshakable life? Well, it has to do with the transformation that occurs when you're with a number of people who you get to know who can speak into your life, and when you're just walking beside them, you pick things up that you otherwise would never pick up. So as of 20, it was 29 years ago when I came walking into my first small group meeting, and I, I shared this just in our leadership retreat we had um, just a few weeks ago, and just how that experience was and how unique it was. And someone had invited us to a small group, didn't know what a small group was, had no idea what they did there. That could be a seance for all I know. And I didn't understand. I'd been to Bible studies before. A little different, just strictly a Bible study. We kind of got together for a Bible study, and then we kind of dispersed. And those were great, and I learned a ton. I used to go to Bible study every single after church on Sunday. There'd be a Bible study, and there was a Wednesday night Bible study as well. This thing had a different flavor to it. Well, first of all, I'll just, I'll just take the time. So we got invited, LaDonna and I, to a, a small group meeting. It was in Fort Collins. And a bunch of, one person came up and invited us. Hey, we meet on da-da-da. And then another person, hey, we, by about the third invite, we're like, okay, 
they're probably picking on us. They're ganging up on us is what's happening, right? But in a loving way, and it was a good thing. It wasn't anything negative. And so we, we were debating on going to this small group. And so we waited around until the last moment. We're like, yeah, I guess we should go because they're probably going to bug us next Sunday too. So we, show, we drive up, and there's lights on the house. We could see people inside. We come up, and we knocked on the door. And it took a little while for them to open the door. I remember that. And then they opened up the door, and hey, hi, hey, uh. And they were, you know, obviously they had invited us to there. We went through the whole Bible study. It was great. We went through the Bible study. We had food and fellowship. We just sat around and talked with different people, kind of got to know them a little bit. We could tell they knew each other really, really, really well. I mean, they, they knew everything about each other, pretty much. And so we started going to that small group, and we just, we loved it so much. And we grew so immeasurably. Well, it was about a year later when I was meeting with Bill, who was kind of a mentor at that time. He said, hey, I just got to share with you what happened that night you guys first showed up at a small group. And I just kind of looked, I'm like, what? He goes, well, it turns out that we had already started small group when you pulled up in your car. So we were kind of like through the first phase, but then somebody saw you guys getting out of your car, so what do you think they did? They, they started all over again. Why? They wanted to make us feel welcome. And I, afterwards thinking to myself, I wonder how they got the whole group to do that. And then at that point in time, if you think about it, you realize they all knew each other so well that it wasn't even a question. They're like, we're going to do this. And small groups have that flavor to them. There is a life connection with other people that is maybe different than something that you've experienced before that was maybe just kind of like a class you know, or a seminary, seminary classes. I'm not saying they can't have those types of things, but usually you do your content and you kind of go home and maybe you don't even see each other throughout the whole week. You don't know what's going on. You're certainly maybe not praying for each other and, and really standing with each other um, in, in terms of going through life together. Usually happens in a group of about 6 to 12 people most effectively. You get above 12 and it's, you know, the studies say not, not everybody feels comfortable in that and not everybody gets to share and there's kind of this loss of this, this intimacy that is so characteristic of a small group. And so small groups have this flavor to them that's really, really important. But they also have a purpose. And Acts 2 is on purpose. The Holy Spirit created this church that met together where they were for a purpose. And when I put, when I put GCs, I'm abbreviating for two important things. One occurs in Matthew 22, and one occurs in Matthew 28. The first GC is the great commandment, which is, Matthew 22, to love God, you with your heart, strength, thank you, good, heart, soul, mind, strength. And you do that, and not only that, but also Jesus added what to it? And love your neighbor as yourself. So there's the great commandment right there, love God and love people. And then you have Matthew 28, Jesus kind of left this last thing. He says, guys, we got, we got this common mission that we're doing together, and he give us this great commandment and great commission kind of in tandem with each other. And the great commission is, is that we would reach out to other people, not just to reach them, but to disciple them and to live life together with them. And what kind of an environment would be most, most effective to do that in? I would argue a small group environment was and probably is the most effective. And of course, this first small group, I'm not going to say happened in Acts 2 or even in the, gospel of, of the Gospels, but 
recognize what Jesus did. What did he do? He took how many guys? And he, he, went, to the, he went to Harvard, right? And he picked out their 12 best candidates, right? He took their, he took their this highest scoring people and he said, you're my men. That's what a headhunter would do. No, he took them and he did what with them? He spent three years with them. Three years with those 12 guys. And the 12 guys, he had an inner three, the PJs. And then outside of that, he had lots of disciples who were also following him as well. But he had a concentration. And when his life was over with, his ministry carried on because of what? The 12 guys who he had built his life into and the others as well. And so that small group had a very effective, uh, a, a very effective kind of uh, concentration towards what Jesus was doing. You want to think of your family as a small group. You kind of think of that as well. You raise your kids up, and they do what at some point in time, hopefully? Sarah, what do they do when they're, when they're age 18 or 20? They leave, right? And you, at that point in time, have built into them certain things, values and character qualities, and hopefully kind of a vision for life, that they would then be a productive person. And you, you sense in a small group kind of the same way because there is a sending. And the idea really behind a small group is that it would be small, and then it would get bigger, and then it would do what? Ben and, uh, in the Keller Baker group this last Wednesday, we talked about um, this whole idea of blocking and tackling and, and the, the church at Antioch and the fact that Paul and Barnabas spent a whole year there, and they built into these people, and, and these people were just new Christians, and at the end of year, this church actually said, you know what? You guys need to go, not like kick you out of town, but they needed to do what? What was it, Ben? Go start new churches. And so one small group goes and starts another small group, which starts another small group, and that's how the church went. Because if you look, and we were talking about the book of Acts and the Keller group on Wednesday, and I'm just saying, great study, Wednesday night, you're free. So at some point in time, you don't see the meeting in the temple courts in the book of Acts. And why is that? Stephen, the first deacon, what happened to him? He got stoned. Thank you, Sean. He got stoned. And Paul was holding the coats. And we realized that the church was so persecuted that they could only meet where? Small groups. They were already set up. They were going to grow no matter what happened. And so as you see the explosion adding day by day and multiplying, you recognize, boy, the small group ministry of the first century was, was immeasurable for accomplishing the great commandment, connecting people with their God and having them live out a life of love because they were living with each other in such proximity. How can you love someone without being connected to them in some way, being close to them? Jesus said, love one another. The commands, the love one another commands are a whole bunch of them. How do you live with them? Live those out. If you just come to church on Sunday morning and you have this little sliver of time, well, you can't. So connection with people is so important, and the small group allows those two things, the GCs, to occur in that way. And so I just want to ask you a question. Do you know someone in your life who has an unswerving life? In general, their life is, is held on target, and they consistently have, have a, a consistent growth in their, in their life, and for the most part, handle things in a different way than maybe the general public. 
And then the tandem to that question is, do you know someone who doesn't? And they have all kinds of swerves, and they're always talking about this or that and the problem here and there, and that, that they don't know what to do, and they're kind of like, kind of lost. And most of you would answer, I know both kinds. And what I would say is this, that in general, the person who runs, who has the unswerving, unshakable life isn't by himself. That person has a number of other people in their lives that they regularly get input from and encouragement from to hold fast the direction they're going. Every race car driver has to have what? He has a car, and then what does he have? About every however many laps, he's got what? He's got a pit crew. And if they're bad, what happens to the race car driver's success? It gets real ugly with the verbiage, okay? So you can just see if they're late. And you realize, wow, that is so important. It is so important to have a pit crew. And you are a pit crew for someone as they are for you when you are living in community in a small group environment and having a relational world. And so when I say small group, I mean you have people who are consistently, not like just once in a while, who are consistently around you, giving you input and in who you are pursuing God together with, that you are reading scripture, that you are praying together, that you are holding each other up and doing the one another commands, really. And the key thing is, is that obviously Jesus is the key to all of our relationships and the, the effectiveness of our relationships being uh, encouragement to others. I can't be an encouragement to someone else unless I myself is, am what? Encouraged. This is, the, this is the concept of the briquette. You know how the briquettes work, don't you? A lot of you probably don't even remember briquettes because honestly, I don't see them that often anymore, huh? Okay, so what's the idea of the briquettes? You get, a, get, them, get them hot, a few of them hot, and then they do what to the other ones around them? They keep them hot. And if you, a little one gets off to the side, he's on his own, what happens to that briquette? Oftentimes. Eh, not so good. That's a swerve. That's a, shake, that's a shakeable life because they are off by them. Ah, good. Okay, so... Staying together is super, super important. In Hebrews 20, 10, 23, it says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And if we don't stay close to the source, and people who are also staying close to the source, we are like a little briquette out on our own, and we have, we're just, we're kind of a, we're, we're real vulnerable to a lot of different things. And so allowing us to be around people who can better help us to pursue Christ. And so you realize that when you're with other people, uh, and I, I think of just this week in small groups, some of the things that were shared um, on Thursday night, there are a lot of things going on, job problems and the health problems and losses, emotional things that are just going on. You could just see that family was encouraging each other. Bob was leading and they were heckling the buggers out of them. I just thought, Bob, what did you do to deserve this? No, I, they were just, it was just kind of this fun thing that was going on. But at the end of the night, there was a sense, oh, they, they care for each other. They know exactly what's going on in each other's lives. And they were able to speak to each other. And so sometimes people just say, I just want to hear God say something directly to I would I would obey him if he just spoke to me directly. And yet, they're not in a place, in a group of people who are also following Christ, who the Holy Spirit can use to be the voice, literally the voice of Jesus to us. So oftentimes, other believers speak to us 
using our larynx, but God uses them to speak into our lives, to encourage us, to allow us to see things from a brand new perspective. And you get those aha moments, and it's really cool. But he uses us, he uses our hands and our feet and other people's hands and feet to, to build us up. And so it's really important to recognize that an isolated person, that briquette idea is just really not a very a healthy scenario. And if you find yourself in that position, I am encouraging you today, do not do it. Because two years from now, there's a lot of swerves that will happen in between now and two years from now. And a lot of times I'll see people who come to church for a little while and they don't really get connected into a group. And guess what happens to them statistically? We just have church data that we look at. But I just know this because it's been 18, whatever, 19 years. They stop coming. And they drift off. And they don't even realize it. It's just a slow briquette cooling that happens. And then pretty soon they're like, their life is just going crazy. And they have no one else to support them and to encourage them to give them good counsel and to recognize that Jesus, and Jesus becomes a diminished factor in their life. And boy, without Jesus, we are cooked. We are in big, big trouble. And so it says, let us consider how to stir up one another. So this just isn't about us. It's about who? John and Connie. How many young people come to your, your group on Thursday night? Approximately weekly. Just kind of general number. Okay, okay, 14, 15, 16. A plenty, plenty. Are you, do you ever feel stirred up by the end of the night? Yeah, John shared that with me before. It's like, wow. And when we went to our first small group, we came home, we're like, that was amazing. What was going on there? We were so dumb, we didn't know. It's like, well, the Holy Spirit was working. We just didn't even know how good it was and why it was good. We just knew we liked it. And yet there's still a battle. Every, you know, every week we're like, oh, we, get, oh, we got all these things going on. Man, are we going to go to small group? And we're kind of like, I remember going, at the end of the night, we go to small group and we're like, why were we even thinking that we shouldn't go to small group? And you know the reason why we were thinking we shouldn't go to small group? Because the devil didn't want us to. I'll just say it that way. It's just as straight out as could be. He didn't want us to go there because he didn't want our lives to be more and more committed to Jesus, to following him, and to encouraging other people. And small groups are not just about us. Sometimes we, we had this discussion on Wednesday, and another great discussion. Ben was pointing the group. I could tell he was just great questioning. And the, the group was, the question is, is why do you go to church? So I'm going to ask you the question right now. Why do you go to church? Okay? So rhetorical, okay. But in group, it's not rhetorical. Because why? Because we can all share because we have enough time to share. But if, we had, if I had everybody answer why they go to church, we'd be here till like 3 o'clock, and we better serve lunch and the whole bit, the whole bit with cookies and the whole thing. Why do you go to church? Yeah, okay, she's good with that. Yeah, I'm good with cookies. Super full course meal. Why do you go to church? Some of the answers were, I feel filled. I feel, it's a feeling of filled upness, which is good. But you said it. What was it? Worship. To honor God. And Ben was, he was working hard to get us going that direction. Did a great job. And yeah, it's not all about what? It's not all about me. It isn't. 
because it's, he is so much more important. And in a small group environment, we recognize, wow, it's not just all about you either. You don't just come there so that you can be, you also are an encourager. And a lot of people ask me, I just don't know how God wants to use me. I, I don't think I have any gifts. And I'm like, are you free on Wednesday night at 6.30? Because I have a group that you could be a blessing to. Are you free at Thursday night at 6 o'clock? Are you free on Wednesday morning at 6.30? Are you free on Tuesday? <laughs> Are you free on Tuesday? Your, your ministry and mission can best, sometimes best be actually in being involved in other people's lives. And then together you go and do it. This is the, the whole point of, and I don't mean to uh, mention Wednesday study so much, but block and tackle. You've heard the term, right? It's the basics of everything, right? It's, it's the important essentials that allow a team to go down a field and score a touchdown one or two yards or four yard, yards at a time. And then there's the Hail Mary in contrast to that. And that's the what? The miraculous one where the guy catches it with one hand and he runs into the end zone and you're like, oh, I just want to be the guy who's catching it and running into the end zone. But what about all the block and tacklers that are involved with usually that help you win a game? And the idea here is this, is that a small group is a place and for us to do the block and tackles that allow people to come to a point where they know Jesus more and more and more. And I would just say this, most of my growth came as a spiritual and spiritually came from small groups. The interactions with people and the questions and the relationships that resulted from that. And man, that was my watch. And I must be really long-winded today, but I want to tell you this. Small groups are our plan A for discipleship. There are other ways to be discipled, and to, but in, as it is right now, it's the place where we feel like that's where you can grow the most. And I think it's very, very true because I've seen it in so many lives. I've seen it in so many lives that in the last two years, in the last less than a year, even the last, yeah, a few months, I've seen at minimum two people come to Christ in a small group, directly as a result of being in a small group, learning from people, and I don't quite get this, and they're kind of a beginner, and so they're starting to, trying to figure out this Bible thing because maybe they never, like me, never read the Bible when I was younger, you know, until age 19, and all of a sudden people are starting to share things, and they're putting things together, and they're realizing that the Jesus is so important and that their sin is what keeps them from a relationship with God, and that they need to trust in Jesus, and they realize that through relationships with other people. It's powerful. And if you're here this morning, and you recognize that you need more and more and more of, of Jesus to, to keep your life unswerving and unshakable, you need to realize the first problem is that you have sin in your life. Now, if I had you raise your hand and say, how many of you have sinned, what should happen? Everybody should just be raising both hands, right? Because we all sin. And if we don't sin by doing something wrong that he told us not to do, it's because we're not doing something he told us to do. It's either commission or omission or whichever way. But we recognize that we've sinned. And because God is so perfect, it's this separation. But number two, we need to believe that Jesus is actually God's solution because he looked at us poor little people and he's like, they're never going to get it on their own. They're never going to be perfect. So he looks down and he goes, I need to help them, just like any parent would. So he sends what? Something cheap? No, an expensive solution for an expensive problem. And so he takes Jesus, he puts him up on the cross, and he says, that's the, that's the cross 
That's Troy's cross, but Jesus is going to stand in his place. That's the cross for Bill, but Jesus is going to pay for his sins because he's now completely trusted that Jesus is God's solution. And there's a commitment to follow him that is best really fulfilled by people getting together on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. And now Tuesday nights at, you know, 6 o'clock, if you don't have any place to be, man, I'm telling you, they're going to need some people in their group because it gets lonely when there's only two of you talking, to, well, four of you talking together. And all of the groups need people because we need each other. And we need to grow. And we need to recognize that God's plan is for us not to stay where we're at. How many of these do I, does it take to advance? Ah, good. Uh, we're going to go a little bit. I'm going to do some editorial stuff here. Okay, that means you can close your eyes if you get kind of dizzy. Okay, secret sauce. Corey likes this term. I like it too. What's the secret sauce to when you're reading your Bible and you recognize all of a sudden, ah, oh, aha moments, eureka moments, in engineering, eureka moments. And you're like, whoa, I, I never saw that. And you're reading it and you're like, I, just, I read Matthew before. Matthew 15, Friday morning. We're reading Matthew 15, going through it as a men's group. And so we're feeding the 5,000. I need more time, but we're feeding 5,000. And we talked about the number of fish and bread and all that stuff. We talked about the fact that, man, this is such a miracle to see this happen, that he would feed 5,000 people starting with this much food, and at the end of it, he would have all these basketfuls full of food. And it was an amazing miracle. And it is an amazing miracle. And then all of a sudden... And there's this little story in between. And then he feeds 4,000 people right on the heels of the 5,000. And you think, wow, two amazing miracles. And actually, biblical, I would call them critics, say there probably was only one miracle because they really want only one. They want to minimize the number of miracles, obviously. They say it probably was the same miracle that happened. Well, Matthew wrote about it in one chapter. Both, he wrote both things separated by something else. I'm like, what is it? There's, there's no way that this could be this way. Two Gospels say it that way. But what happened in between was so significant. And it was an aha moment that our group went through on Friday morning. And it's the secret sauce that I want you to understand. Because he fed 5,000. And it was Jewish people. That was, he was in the location where Jewish people would be. So he fed 5,000 men and probably another 10,000 women and children. And then there's this Canaanite woman. And she come, and a Canaanite woman's not the Jewish person who Jesus would normally associate with. And she comes and she asks this request of Jesus. She says, can you heal? Will you heal my family? A request for a family, a family prayer request. And this bugged, I remember getting a text from one of my kids a while back. And this bugged the, one of my kids like, I can't believe Jesus, Jesus would, would turn this woman down. Why would, he, why, would he, why would he do that? Jesus said to her, it is not right for me to give the food of the, the Jewish people to you. And she's like, but, and she replies this way, but even the dogs can eat the scraps from the table. And Jesus says to her, you have great faith. And does he do, does he do the miracle in the end? Absolutely. He heals. And so there's this perspective of going, man, this, wow. I wonder why he said no. I mean, doesn't Jesus want to do something good for everybody? 
And as we were discussing this whole thing, like, wow, that's a pretty big thing. I brought up this family conversation I had with one of my kids and how that worked out and how the order of things is this way, that Jesus came, uh, Romans 1.16, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And so there's an order of things. There's a dispensation of how Jesus was to approach things. And he knew that he was eventually going to, to reach everyone, but his mission was primarily to the who? Jewish people. And if you kind of think of it this way, it was his small group of people who would then take what? The gospel and his word to the whole world. And then you go, oh, I get this whole thing. You start small and you get bigger. Well, what's neat about this Matthew 15 is that if you read it in this way, and towards the end I thought, well, you know, there's nuggets, and you don't always want to pick up the nuggets, and I knew we were pressed for time. And I thought, I'm not going to go there. But Derek picked up something that was just this amazing aha thing. I didn't get to talk to him about it later on, but he said, but look at the connection. There's this feeding of, of this whole idea that, that something falls off the table and that that would feed even not the Jews, but Gentiles, even Canaanites. And so there's a feeding of 5,000 and then there's a feeding of 4,000. But what the skeptics say about they're the same, they're the same miracle is they're two completely different audiences. First was for the Jews, he fed 5,000, but the 4,000 was Gentiles, separated by a story about what? A woman who was not a Jew. And you think, wow, that is so significant. And it was only that we saw that through the processing of a group. And when the aha moments came on, people had it. It was like, oh, wow, I get it. Understand that God has something that he wants to teach us through other people. We are his voices. We are his feet. We are his hands. And sometimes it happens best in the context of a group that, that, that occurs. How does God tell you to turn right now? Have you ever missed, have you ever missed an exit? Do you guys remember looking at maps, driving, find a find, exit? Yeah, you're laughing like, that is impossible. First of all, dangerous, but impossible. But even with these little devices here, sometimes like, they're like, turn right here. And you're like, there's no road there. They must have, they must have taken that out. And you're just like, what's going on here? But in your spiritual life and in your life just for direction, how do you ask yourself, do I turn here or not? And I guess I want you to consider that because... There is really a lot at stake because of this. If you say to me, I'm just really too busy to be in a small group. I'm just really too busy to be involved in other people. My response will be this. Two words. And then there will be this pause. And I will tell you, are you really too busy? Your spiritual life is like that car. It can be so easily distracted and damaged because of the fact that it needs care and attention. And the care and attention that it needs a lot of times happens with the ingredients that it's not the only way, but it's one of the, uh, probably the most, I would say, patterned way of the Bible is that people spent time with people and we have this whole Antioch thing going on. And it's really, really important to recognize that because if I ask most of you, what's your plan to stay on track in your spiritual life? You'd probably say, well, I'm going to pray and read my Bible. 
And that would be a very good starting point because that has to be happening all the time. But boy, there are times that we have defining moments in our life and we don't know when they're going to be. You don't know when the next defining moment will be and neither do I. It'll be the time when you go, I don't know the left, right? I don't know what's going on. And it'll be at this time that you will already want to have had a relationship network put in place. It can't happen when, the, when it's... It doesn't help you to, to buy a set of tires, to, to, to mean to buy a set of tires when your tire's blown up halfway between here and Casper. Oh, it's meaning to do that. doesn't help you. Defining moment, isn't it? Man, and this despair got air in it and all that kind of stuff, and you're like, man, too late for that. I ask you again, what is your greatest regret? And how did that have to do with the fact that you maybe didn't have some people in your lives that were giving you some good input about how to make a decision, how to handle this situation? I've already done this before. Have you ever considered this? When someone says that to you, it's like E.F. Hutton. You're like, I'm all ears. I want to hear what you have to say because one way or the other, your experience is worth a, a bunch. The people you hang out with, all the young people hate to hear this, but us old people need to hear it too. The godly give good advice to their friends. The wicked lead them astray. If we recognize in 1 Corinthians, says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. And I'm not even saying you're hanging out with bad people. Don't think I'm saying that. They just may not be connected to Christ and can't be his voice in your life. Can't be his encouragement in your life. And so I'm saying you need to have those relationships too. You need to have really both. So why did I swerve? In 1992, I would bought this, you know, I downsized from the Chrysler New Yorker Cruiser. <laughs> you could go 100 in that thing, theoretically, and you would never even feel it. I mean, seriously, it was, I ran over a deer at 90. I, all it was just hair on the shift link underneath. That was it. If, I felt it. I felt a little kavum, but that was it. It was super. 440 cubic inches of pure gas guzzling capacity, but it was replaced by an 83 Honda Civic station wagon thinking, I'm going to save some gas. So then I found out I'm going to be carpooling. I didn't realize that. Carpooling with these three other people, Gino, Mike, and Eva. And so now I had this little Civic that we're all kind of, it was a little bit tight. You know, I got the little four speed. So you're trying to like move your knee, shift, move your knee, shift, that kind of thing. Well, one day we were coming home from school, Eden, Colorado, and it was cornfields. Now it's all, everything's growing up over there in Colorado. And so we're cornfields, and everybody else is just kind of doing their thing and looking down at their books because phones weren't a thing then. And all of a sudden, I just, and I didn't break the beads on the tires, but I rammed it sideways and come back on the other side, and a corn truck had pulled out on the, on the highway and everyone looked up at the time when they saw the corn truck, and it was just like, God took, you know, Jesus take the wheel. Oh, my. And that right mirror, it had to be millimeters away from the truck. And it was a big truck, and it would have been super ugly. To which, as we got back on, Mike, the science teacher, goes, great driving. I'm like, I didn't even do that. I don't even know what happened. I have no idea what happened. And we all drove home the rest of the way. And do you think that changed the way that our little, our little commuting took place from there on out? Everybody was like, eyes on the road. Hey, here's a car coming up. And you know what? We need that. We need co-pilots, backseat drivers, 
in groups to say, you know what? I've handled this situation before. And here's what I would do. This is what God says. Pretty important for us to, to recognize those things. There's about 10 more slides, but guess what? We're not going to do them. We're going to close with a prayer. And my prayer is for you and I to be in community in a way that would be life-changing and that it would alter even the impact of our life. Because I do want you to remember this. And this is about 2006. This became real to me, and it just, I saw it. And actually, on Wednesday night, Ben was pushing all my buttons. He was 10:24. I was like, the Holy Spirit is just nailing me on all of these things. I was thinking about ahead of time. But here's what I kind of gleaned, and there was some, a couple of things that kind of resonated with that Ben said too. But in 2006... I came to this understanding that we need a meaningful relation. We need meaningful relationships. Not just, hey, Sunday morning, hey, how are you? Cookie, coffee, gone. No, not. But we also need a meaningful role. And what I mean by that is, is we need to have some purpose in our life because people don't feel at ease because they were made for something better. They were made for something more important. And a, re- a meaningful role, meaningful relationship, and meaningful worship, which, we, which, we, which occurs when we're here singing, and also occurs when we're, when we're ministering to someone else who's in need, which I witnessed on Thursday night in a real special way, just people who are healing someone who is literally like healing them, allowing them to kind of uh, just come through this process, much like the Friday night study, and just recognizing that you need a meaningful relationship, you need a meaningful role, and you truly do need to have meaningful, meaningful worship in your life. And I appreciate so much you saying that. Those are three components to a life well-lived. The small group fulfills almost all of those things. Unlike the Sunday morning. Sunday morning's great. But do you know after Acts 7 or Acts 8, you don't see Sunday morning Temple Square at all. Why? Stephen got slammed. And the church was persecuted, but it forced it to do what? To go out and branch God's purpose. But recognize that the small group was the vehicle of the early church all the way through the book of Acts. And the early church, and it still is today, because it allows us to have meaningful worship, a meaningful relationship, not only with our Savior, with God, but also with other people, and a meaningful role. And I come to small group, and I'm like, I'm going to encourage someone today. And I'm going to be encouraged. I'm going to share something that's just going to click something in someone's mind. They're going to go, oh, I get it. That speaks to me. Thank you so much for saying that. So as I pray for you, I want you to recognize I, that's, I just so, so much appreciate someone else sharing those things with me at some point in time along. And if you can see some, maybe some traction in that in your life, I'd encourage you to get involved in a group because it'll change, it will literally change your life Regrets? Probably not. You will regret if you don't get in a small group. You will. Some point in time down the line, you will regret it. I'm just going to share what Bill shared, and then I will pray. On our leadership retreat out here, he just said how small groups had changed his life. And not just him participating in a small group as in a, someone who shows up, but some led a small group multiple times here. And how it is, in, it is really just deep in his faith, but also even in his business life, how it's changed him, and really his, his perspective on, on being able to get with people and share with them. And so I'd encourage you, if you have never been to a small group, show up on time, okay? Go show up on time. Don't make him start over. But 
go there with the expectancy that not only will you be blessed, but that they will be blessed as well, the other people, as Jesus speaks to each one of you. God, we just thank you for your design, that you have designed us to be relational people who need others. We are briquettes, and we just admit that, that we need not only a relationship with you first and foremost, that we would continue to seek you out through your word and through prayer and through worship you, but that we would do that in community as well, that we would commit to some things that would make, make up an unswerving life, an unshakable life that allows us to look back years from now and go, I'm glad I went that direction. It has made the difference for me and my family. And so we thank you for this time together in your word. We thank you for Hebrews 10, just to, the encouragement that we would spur one another on towards love and good works, that we would be iron sharpening iron, Father, that you'd help us to do that, that we would commit to a small group, and not just to participate and go, but to also be a part of that group, to be a family that grows together and uh, goes through life together and lives out uh, this Christian life that we're to live in a more effective way for you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.